You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. First John chapter 2. The last time we were in First John, Pastor DeBruin preached a message on warning us about the Antichrist, as John gives us in uh, most of chapter 2 of his first epistle. But tonight, we continue on with the Apostle's exhortation uh, with a very, various tests that uh, the Apostle gives us. And in particular tonight, these tests have to do with establishing our assurance that we are in right standing with God. As the children of God, we are to bear a particular mark. We are called to stand out with the marks of righteousness that set us apart from the rest of the world. And so, in the middle of this exhortation towards godliness and purity, we find in chapter 3, verse 1, this glad exasperation as John has an epiphany movement where he glories in the wonders that we share in the divine nature as the children of God and encourages us here to keep our hope fixed on Jesus who will return and reveal himself to us unveiled. When we see him, we shall be like him. Please follow as I read 1 John chapter 2 beginning in verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But when, but we do know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, these are amazing truths. These are things, unfortunately, we take for granted. We don't keep in the forefront of our thinking. But I pray tonight that you would press these things deep into our hearts, that we might find joy, that we might find hope. As we look forward to the future of Christ's return, as we consider our present status as your beloved children, teach us and minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife and I will occasionally speculate about what our children will be when they grow up. Our oldest is quite the little scholar. He's strong academically. He loves to read. He's good in languages. Perhaps he'll be some sort of scholar in linguistics or languages or some similar discipline. Our only daughter is a lover of babies, 
and anything cuddly and furry. We can imagine that someday she'll have a resume filled with being a mommy and having to do with children and pets. In fact, sometimes we find her instructing her younger siblings in Playhouse School. In fact, she enjoys that more than receiving instruction from her mom. So perhaps even teaching might be on her resume someday. Well, our next in line seems to have some athletic skills that we hope to develop in future years. You can never begin too early preparing for athletic scholarships down the road. And then there's our fourthborn, who we call Mr. Drama. Whether it's singing, dressed in G- GQ fashion, or flashing a charming smile at the ladies, we won't be surprised if he's on stage someday. And then our next in line, the two-year-old, has the typical commanding disposition of a two-year-old. So perhaps someday he'll straighten things out with, as a bank CEO or an army general. And then there's the newborn who is far too young to determine his particular characteristics and skill set. But if you'll take a quick glance at him, you'll see that he hasn't missed too many meals. Perhaps he'll be the family chef. Well, an exercise such as dreaming and thinking about the future is both fun and an opportunity to tease our children. But when it comes down to it, my wife and I have to admit, we really don't have any idea what our children will turn out to be, what they'll do, what they'll become. We'll certainly do our best to shape their character, to guide their education, but we cannot control their destiny. And we would lack the wisdom to presume such a thing anyway. Ultimately, we must entrust our children into God's hands for how they turn out, their career aspirations, where they choose to live, whom they marry, if they marry, and so on. We laugh that my parents probably never imagined that I would become a minister. Nor, has my, nor my wife's parents probably didn't imagine her becoming a pastor's wife and the mother of six children. It's only natural for parents to dream, to do at least some planning for their children's future. And we believe that this disposition comes from God our Father, who faithfully prepares His children for His ultimate goal, that we become like Christ. Just as parents cannot imagine how their kids will turn out and what they will be someday, we only have the faintest glimpse of our final glory when we are in the presence of Christ. All of us are a work in progress. None of us has yet arrived. And the Apostle John has already acknowledged the many roadblocks that we will face. Things that may hinder us in the Christian life. Unconfessed sin, self-righteousness, worldliness, pride, and even the Antichrist. But John here gives us practical guidance on how we might make progress in holiness as we practice the presence of God. Prepare for Christ's return and purify ourselves with hope. Our opening verse, verse 28, is a rich one. It's the first of three designations 
that we are the children of God. As John is continuing his exhortation to avoid false teachers, he goes on to command us to remain in Christ. The verb here in the NIV translation comes out as continue. But this word, whether it's remain or the King James Version of abide, is the same word Jesus uses in his famous John 15 passage of the vine and the branches. This organic metaphor speaks of Jesus as our source of life and sustenance. To be cut off from him is the result in death. Just as a child must stick close to his daddy for comfort and protection, so what we must be near Jesus, walk with him by faith. And so we must wait for his return as we abide with him and enjoy his fellowship, practicing his presence even now. Recently, I began reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to my children again. Many times over, I'm amazed at how many, with every fresh reading of the Narnia series, I pick up on new things I haven't noticed before. In this recent reading, I've noticed with what great anticipation the Narnian animals have of the return of Aslan. When Mr. Beaver is explaining to the Pavinzi children about the White Witch and who Aslan is, Edmund pipes up with a question. Could the White Witch turn Aslan into stone? Mr. Beaver laughs at such a simple notion. He'll be surprised if the witch could even stand on her own two feet before Aslan. Later on, Edmund will desert his siblings. And his brother and sisters are determined to go after him to rescue him. But Mr. Beaver warns them that their only hope for saving themselves and Edmund was to go to Aslan. And thus begins a recurring theme in the Narnia series. Never act independently of Aslan. Work with him. Follow after him. Abide with him. You see, in our fallen nature, we're tempted to pridefully go our own way, to depend upon our own strength. But God's word warns us to abandon such foolish notions. Rather, go to Jesus. Only his way can we confidently reach our destination. As was observed in the recent Prince Caspian movie, when little Lucy faces the entire enemy army alone, she can stand with Aslan at her side. Those who go their own way will find themselves ashamed at the coming of Christ. It's possible for Christians to be ashamed if they are far too distracted in worldliness on the day of Christ. But the major concern here in verse 29 is for those lives that fail to demonstrate any real evidence that they are in union with Christ. Verse 29 tells us that those who practice righteousness have been born of God. In contrast, those lives in which righteousness is absent have not 
been born of God. And we need to be careful of what John is not saying. He is not saying that those who do right earn favor with God and become his children. Rather, those who are born of God will inevitably practice righteousness. You can hardly help it. It becomes natural to your spirit. John makes these clear distinctions. People are either born of God or they are not born of God. All of our actions are either the fruit of righteousness by faith or mere dead works. There are people who masquerade as believers with apparent good works. But any good thing done without faith, the Bible calls sin. I've known people who've spent much time making excuses for loved ones who profess Christ but fail to demonstrate anything regarding a Christian lifestyle. They are backslidden. They are mere carnal Christians. They just need maturity. But in my experience, perhaps 90 plus percent of the time, such people need new birth. They cannot live the Christian life They have no desire for God or worship with God's people. They cannot resist their passions because they do not have life in Christ. When the Pavinzi children of Narnia first hear the name Aslan, there's a radical distinction among them. Peter, Susan, and Lucy experience this tremor of joy like the first outbreak of spring at the hearing the name of Aslan. In contrast, Edmund is filled with dreaded terror. Later, when Edmund betrays his brother and sisters, Mr. Beaver confesses that he could see in, As- see in Edmund's eyes that he was treacherous. He was under the spell of the white witch. At first, the other children try to make excuses for Edmund. But then they must concede that their brother was a traitor. And so their only hope was to go to Aslan. They could not save him. Are there people in your life who need Jesus more than they need your nagging, more than your excuses or anything that we tend to do to enable a pretense of false Christianity. I believe the Scripture would call us to give them over to the Lord, to pray for them, for their salvation, to be a witness to them of their ultimate need for Christ. Maybe even amongst us there are some who are pretending to be Peter, but are actually an Edmund. Our challenge to you is to stop fooling, drop the pretense Come clean, the only one who can save you from the spell of the devil is the Lord Jesus himself. You must be born again if you would have any hope to abide in him. Well, in the middle of this discourse about moral and ethical, the moral and ethical dimension of the Christian life, John 
as he's anticipating our hope of the return of Christ, breaks out into unhindered astonishment of the magnitude of God's love for us in Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 3 literally says, Behold, from what country is God's love? You see, this love is completely out of the world, out of this world. It is foreign to us. This lavish gift of divine adoption is complete unmerited favor. It's something totally alien from the natural merit system of this world. Parents love to give good gifts to their children, even unmerited gifts. But God's gift to us is indescribable. It is ill-deserved. As Pastor Rogers explained this morning, we were once enemies of God, deserving His wrath and displeasure. So His grace to us is completely beyond measure, beyond any matters of justice or fairness. You know, it may be one thing for God to have granted us pardon, to no longer be accountable for our crimes, to be set free. In fact, many world religions will offer some means of remitting sin or canceling your punishment in the afterlife. But nothing else on earth even compares to the biblical teaching of divine adoption. You and I who are in Christ are not only justified by the blood of Christ, we're not only spared judgment to come, we are welcomed into the family of God as legitimate sons and daughters. We have a new status. We are a beloved children. We are co-heirs with Christ. John has to repeat himself to just try to marvel over this wonderful truth that we are the children of God. Of course, the world's reaction is disgust. The world completely disapproves with our arrogant notion that we're somehow special, that we are God's children. And so John addresses briefly this natural enmity we experience from the world, from those who have rejected Christ. They are not children of God, but children of the devil. And so we find our consolation in the fact that we have been adopted, that we are protected by the Lord Almighty, that He is our God and our Father. But the crowning hope of the Christian faith comes in verse 2. For God's children, there awaits a great surprise. Growing up, as I did in Houston, Texas, my father would often travel overseas on long-distance, long-term business trips. And my father's sales territory in the petrochemical industry took him to places like Chile, Singapore, China, Scotland, and other such places. And when my father would return, he would often bring a gift, something very unique from this far-off, distant land. And these gifts I found quite interesting. And they gave me bragging rights, show and tell. But the greatest gift, of course, was simply his return, to be with us. John assures us that Christ will come again. 
and He will come bearing a gift. And that gift is that we will share in the divine nature. We will be made like Him. And of course, the greatest gift of all is Himself. We shall see Him as He is. Moses only saw the backside of the Lord's glory when he was on the mountain. Joshua saw the commander of the Lord's army and mistook him for another mighty warrior, veiled as he was. David in Psalm 27 that we read earlier prays that he might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Peter testifies in his second letter that he, James, and John were eyewitnesses of the Lord's majesty at the transfiguration. After this letter, John would go on to live and witness Jesus glorified in the Revelation. Dressed in a golden robe, his hair white like wool, his eyes blazing fire, his feet like bronze, his voice like the sound of rushing waters, out of his mouth coming a double-edged sword, and his face like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. John will go on to write in the revelation of Jesus, faithful and true, leading the Lord's armies on white horses, striking down the nations, trampling the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, bringing judgment upon his enemies and bringing redemption to the sons and daughters of the living God. As we anticipate that day when we will see Jesus in all of His glory, let us remember how this meeting will marginalize all and every encounter we have with people in our lives. Perhaps you have the autograph of somebody famous. Perhaps you may have the opportunity of meeting the United States president or your favorite sports figure, an actress or a musical performer that you admire. Just imagine how all such meetings are but a pale comparison. There is nothing truly great about them. When we consider the privilege we have that we will meet the Savior. We will eat at His table. We will converse with Him about the glories of the kingdom of His God and Father. You and I have heroes. And I'm certainly in favor of pursuing excellence for the glory of God. But let us not be distracted by worldly acclaim. But let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus the only author and perfecter of our faith. And it's with such eyes of faith that we keep this last command in verse 3. This hope of seeing Jesus, of sharing in His likeness, purifies us. Throughout His life, Jesus kept His purity, enduring trials and temptations as He anticipated his return to the Father. That same hope is ours. How is it? How can we possibly return to the pigsty 
of this world like the prodigal. Once we have tasted the grace and the goodness of the Father. The hope of redemption purifies us, strengthening our weak desires with better desires. Replacing our foolish lust with a strong desire of intimacy with God. Transforming our selfish agendas to the great and God-honoring purposes. Placing our neighbor's welfare above our own. It required a heroic rescue by Aslan's army. And the pardoning grace of Aslan himself to change beastly Edmund from a selfish little boy into a humble servant. Edward's cowardice became great courage as he would offer to lay down his life for his own brother. Later, he would be crowned Edmund the Just, justified by the atoning sacrifice of his Savior. Taking the time to meditate upon these great truths of our adoption in Christ, anticipating his glorious return, helps us to remain pure and unspotted by the world. With our eyes fixed on Jesus, we can resist temptation. The temptation to look at foolish vanities in the magazines, on the internet. With our hearts touched by the grace of God, you and I can say no to one more indulgent purchase. Our conversation and fellowship with God in the morning strengthens us to keep a hold on our tongue that we might not speak harshly with others, but offer a tongue of healing. Abiding in Christ day by day toughens our resistance to the enemy attacks that would seek to overthrow us with doubt, overwhelm us with fear, paralyze us in indecision. The hope of Christ's presence now prepares us to face tomorrow. And the hope of Christ's future return enables us to overcome the world. We continue to labor to train up our children, to educate them, to prepare them for adult responsibilities. But our ultimate desire is that our children not be successful in the eyes of the world, but that they be like Christ. You know, it really doesn't matter how much money they make or where they live or how they're using their education and their gifts, as long as they live to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our hope is not limited by the American dream, but is expanded to fulfill all of God's purposes for which He intended them to fulfill. Our hope for ourselves and our children is that they might greet the Savior at His return, running into His arms to hear those words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. May we all continue in him, abiding in his righteousness as we await his return for everyone 
who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Let us pray. The gracious God, our Father, we thank you that our hope is well-founded, is grounded in your word, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for our status as your beloved children, and we pray that you would embolden us, strengthen us as we seek righteousness, as we seek to abide in Christ, to be his faithful witnesses until we meet him at his coming. Thank you so much for blessing us in Jesus' name. Amen.